Chapter 10 of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winterout. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. Translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter 10 Princess Sonia's Bath. Four months had passed since Etienne Rambert had been acquitted at the Cahors Assizes, and the world was beginning to forget the Beaulieu tragedy as it had already almost forgotten the mysterious murder of Lord Beltham. Juve alone did not allow his daily occupation to put the two cases out of his mind. True, he had ceased to make any direct inquiries, and gave no sign that he still had any interest in those crimes, but the detective knew very well that in both of them he had to contend with no ordinary murderer, and he was content to remain in the shadow, waiting and watching, in seeming inactivity, for some slip which would betray the person or persons who had perpetrated two of the most puzzling murders that he had ever had to deal with. It was the end of June, and Paris was beginning to empty. But the spring had been late and cold that year, and although it was within a couple of days of July, society had lingered on in the capital. Luxuriously appointed carriages still swept along the Champs-Élysées when the audiences poured out of the theaters and concert rooms, and fashionably attired people still thronged the broad pavements and gathered before the brilliantly lighted cafés on the Ronde Point. Even at that late hour, the Champs-Élysées were as animated as in the busiest hours of the day. At the Royal Palace Hotel, the greatest animation prevailed. The entire staff was hurrying about the vast entrance halls and the palatial rooms on the ground floor, for it was the hour when the guests of the Royal Palace Hotel were returning from their evening's amusements, and the spacious vestibules of the immense hotel were crowded with men in evening dress, young fellows in dinner jackets, and women in low-cut gowns. A young and fashionable woman got out of a perfectly appointed Victoria, and Monsieur Louis, the manager of the staff, came forward and bowed low, as he only did to clients of the very highest distinction. The lady responded with a gracious smile, and the manager called a servant. The lift for Mademoiselle la Princesse Sonia Danidoff, and the next moment the beautiful vision, who had created quite a sensation merely in passing through the hall, had disappeared within the lift, and was borne up to her apartments. Princess Sonia was one of the most important clients that the Royal Palace Hotel possessed. She belonged to one of the greatest families in the world, being, by her marriage with Prince Danidoff, cousin to the Emperor of Russia, and so connected with many royal personages. Still barely thirty years of age, she was not pretty, but remarkably lovely with wonderful blue eyes, which formed a strange and most bewitching contrast to the heavy masses of black hair that framed her face. A woman of immense wealth, and typically a woman of the world, the princess spent six months of the year in Paris, where she was a well-known and much-liked figure in the most exclusive circles. She was clever and cultivated, a first-rate musician, and her reputation was spotless, although it was very seldom that she was accompanied by her husband, whose duties as Grand Chamberlain to the Tsar kept him almost continuously in Russia. When in Paris, she occupied a suite of four rooms on the third floor of the Royal Palace Hotel, a suite identical in plan and in luxury with that reserved for sovereigns who came there incognito. The princess passed through her drawing-room, a vast round room with a superb view over the Arc de Triomphe, and went into her bedroom where she switched on the electric light. Nadine, she called, in her grave, melodious voice, 
and a young girl, almost a child, sprang from a low divan hidden in a corner. Nadine, take off my cloak and unfasten my hair. Then you can leave me. It is late and I am tired. The little maid obeyed, helped her mistress to put on a silken dressing gown, and loosened the masses of her hair. The princess passed a hand across her brow, as if to brush away a headache. Before you go, get the bath ready for me. I think that would rest me. Ten minutes later, Nadine crept back like a shadow, and found the princess standing dreamily on the balcony, inhaling deep breaths of the pure night air. The child kissed the tips of her mistress's fingers. Your bath is quite ready, she said, and then withdrew. A few more minutes passed, and Princess Sonya, half undressed, was just going into her dressing room, when suddenly she turned and went back to the middle of the bedroom, which she had been on the point of leaving. Nadine, she called, are you still there? No answer came. I must have been dreaming, the princess murmured, but I thought I heard someone moving about. Sonya Danidoff was not unduly nervous, but like most people who live much alone and in large hotels, she was wont to be careful, and wished to make sure that no suspicious person had made his way into her rooms. She made a rapid survey of her bedroom, glanced into the brilliantly lighted drawing-room, and then moved to her bed, and saw that the electric bellboard, which enabled her to summon any of her own or of the hotel servants, was in perfect order. Then, satisfied, she went into her dressing-room, quickly stripped off the rest of her clothes, and plunged into the perfume water in her bath. She thrilled with pleasure as her limbs, so tired after a long evening, relaxed in the warm water. On a table close to the bath, she had placed a volume of old Muscovite folk-tales, and she was glancing through these by the shaded light from a light above her, when a fresh sound made her start. She sat up quickly in the water and looked around her. There was nothing there. Then a little shiver shook her, and she sank down again into the warm bath with a laugh at her own nervousness. And she was just beginning to read once more, when suddenly a strange voice, with a ring of malice in it, sounded in her ear. Someone was looking over her shoulder and reading aloud the words she had just begun. Before Sonya Danidoff had time to utter a cry or make a movement, a strong hand was over her lips, and another gripped her wrist, preventing her from reaching the button of the electric bell that was fixed among the taps. The princess was almost fainting. She was expecting some horrible shock, expecting to feel some horrible weapon that would take her life, when the pressure on her lips and the grip upon her wrist gradually relaxed, and at the same moment the mysterious individual who had thus taken her by surprise moved round the bath and stood in front of her. He was a man of about forty years of age, and extremely well-dressed. A perfectly cut dinner jacket proved that the strange visitor was no unclean dweller in the Paris slums, no apache such as the princess had read terrifying descriptions of in luridly illustrated newspapers. The hands which held her motionless, and which now restored her liberty of movement to her, were white and well manicured, and adorned with a few plain rings. The man's face was a distinguished one, and he wore a fine black beard. Slight baldness added to the height of a forehead naturally large. But what struck the princess most, although she had little heart to observe the man very closely, was the abnormal size of his head, and the number of wrinkles that ran right across his temples, following the line of the eyebrows. In silence and with trembling lips, Sonya Danidoff made an instinctive effort again to reach the electric bell. 
but with a quick movement the man caught her shoulder and prevented her from doing so. There was a cryptic smile upon the stranger's lips, and with a furious blush, Sonya Danidoff dived back again into the milky water in the bath. The man still stood in perfect silence, and at length the princess mastered her emotion and spoke to him. "'Who are you? What do you want? Go at once, or I will call for help.' "'Above all things, do not call out, or you are a dead woman,' said the stranger harshly. Then he gave a little ironical shrug of his shoulders. "'As for ringing, that would not be easy. You would have to leave the water to do so, and besides, I object.' If it is money or rings you want, said the princess between clenched teeth, take them, but go. The princess had laid several rings and bracelets on the table by her side, and the man glanced at them now, but without paying much attention to what the princess said. Those trinkets are not bad, he said, but your signet ring is much finer. And he calmly took the princess's hand in his and examined the ring that she had kept on her third finger. Don't be frightened, he added, as he felt her hand trembling. Let us have a chat, if you don't mind. There is nothing especially tempting about jewels apart from their personality, he said after a little pause. Apart, I mean, from the person who habitually wears them. But the bracelet on a wrist, or the necklace round a neck, or the ring upon a finger is another matter. Princess Sonya went as pale as death, and utterly at a loss to understand what this extraordinary visitor was driving at. She held up her ring finger and made a frightened little apology. I cannot take this ring off. It fits too tightly. The man laughed grimly. That does not matter in the least, princess. Anyone who wanted to get a ring like that could do it quite simply. He felt negligently in his waistcoat pocket and produced a miniature razor, which he opened. He flashed the blade before the terrified eyes of the princess. With a sharp blade like this, a skillful man could cut off the finger that held such a splendid jewel on it in a couple of seconds. And then, seeing that the princess, in fresh panic, was on the very point of screaming, quick as a flash, he laid the palm of his hand over her lips, while still speaking in gentle tones to her. Please, do not be so terrified. I suppose you take me for some common hotel thief or highway robber. But, princess, can you really believe that I am anything of the kind? The man's tone was so earnest, and there was so deferent a look in his eyes, that the princess recovered some of her courage. "'But I do not know who you are,' she said, half-questioningly. "'So much the better,' the man replied. "'There is still time to make one another's acquaintance. I know who you are, and that is the main thing. You do not know me, princess? Well, I assure you that on very many occasions I have mingled with the blessed company of your adorers.' The princess's anger rose steadily with her courage. Sir, she said, I do not know if you are joking or if you are talking seriously, but your behavior is extraordinary, hateful, abominable. It is merely original, princess, and it pleases me to reflect that if I had been content to be presented to you in the ordinary way, in one or other of the many drawing-rooms we both frequent, you would certainly have taken much less notice of me than you have taken to-night. From the persistence of your gaze, I can see that from this day onward, not a single feature of my face will be unfamiliar to you, and I am convinced that, whatever happens, you will remember it for a very long time. Princess Sonia tried to force a smile. She had recovered her self-possession, and was wondering what kind of man she had to deal with. 
if she was still not quite persuaded that this was not a vulgar thief, and if she had but little faith in his professions of admiration of herself, she was considerably exercised by the idea that she was alone with a lunatic. The man seemed to read her thoughts, for he, too, smiled a little. I am glad to see, Princess, that you have a little more confidence now. We shall be able to arrange things ever so much better. You are certainly much more calm, much less uneasy now. Oh, yes, you are, he added, checking her protest. Why, it is quite five minutes since you last tried to ring for help. We are getting on. Besides, I somehow can't picture the Princess Sonia Danidoff, wife of the Grand Chamberlain, and cousin of His Majesty the Emperor of all the Russias, allowing herself to be surprised alone with a man whom she did not know. If she were to ring and someone came, how would the princess account for the gentleman whom she had accorded an audience in the most delightful, but certainly the most private of all her apartments? But tell me, pleaded the unhappy woman, how did you get in here? That is not the question, the stranger replied. The problem actually before us is, how am I to get out? For of course, princess, I shall not be so indelicate as to prolong my visit unduly, too happy only if you will permit me to repeat it on some other evening soon. He turned his head, and plunging his hand into the bath in the most natural manner possible, took out the thermometer which was floating on the perfumed water. Thirty degrees centigrade, princess. Your bath is getting cold. You must get out. In her blank astonishment, Princess Sonia did not know whether to laugh or cry. Was she alone with a monster who, after having played with her as a cat plays with a mouse, would suddenly turn and kill her? Or was this merely some irresponsible lunatic, whom chance alone had enabled to get into her rooms? Whatever the fact might be, the man's last words had made her aware that her bath really was getting cold. A shiver shook her whole frame, and yet, Oh, go, please go, she implored him. He shook his head, an ironical smile in his eyes. For pity's sake, she entreated him again, have mercy on a woman, a good woman. The man appeared to be considering. It is very embarrassing, he murmured, and yet we must decide upon something soon, for I am most anxious you should not take a chill. Oh, it is very simple, princess. Of course you know the arrangement of everything here so well that you could find your dressing gown at once by merely feeling your way. We will put out the light and then you will be able to get out of the bath in the dark without the least fear. He was on the very point of turning off the switch of the lamp, when he stopped abruptly and came back to the bath. I was forgetting that exasperating bell, he said. A movement is so very easily made. Suppose you were to ring by mere inadvertence and regret it afterwards. Putting his idea into action, the man made a quick cut with his razor and severed the two electric wires several feet above the ground. That is excellent, he said. By the way, I don't know where these other two wires go that run along the wall, but it would be best to be on the safe side. Suppose there was another bell. He lifted his razor once more, and was trying to sever the electrical wires when the steel blade cut the insulator, and an alarming flash of light resulted. The man leaped into the air and dropped his razor. Good Lord, he growled. I suppose that will make you happy, madam. I have burnt my hand most horribly. These must be wires for the light. But no matter, I have still got one sound hand, and that will be enough for me to secure the darkness that you want. And anyhow, you can press the button of your bell as much as you like. It won't ring. 
so I am sure of a few more minutes in your company. Sudden darkness fell upon the room. Sonia Danidoff hesitated for a moment, and then half rose in the bath. All her pride as a great lady was in revolt. If she must defend her honor and her life, she was ready to do so, and despair would give her strength, but in any event, she would be better out of the water, and on her feet prepared. The darkness was complete, both in bathroom and in the adjacent bedroom, and the silence was absolute. Standing up in the bath, Sonia Danidoff swept her arms round in a circle to feel for any obstacle. Her touch met nothing. She drew out one foot, and then the other, sprang toward the chair on which she had left her dressing gown, slipped into it with feverish haste, slid her feet into her slippers, stood motionless for just a second, and then, with sudden decision, moved to the switch by the door and turned on the light. The man had gone from the bathroom, but taking two steps toward her bedroom, Sonia Danidoff saw him smiling at her from the far end of that room. "'Sir,' she said, "'this pleasantry has lasted long enough. You must go. You shall. You shall.' "'Shall?' the stranger echoed. "'That is a word that is not often used to me. But you are forgiven for not knowing that, Princess. I forgot for the moment that I have not been presented to you. But what is in your mind now?' Between them was a little escritoire, on top of which was lying the tiny inlaid revolver that Sonya Danidoff always carried when she went out at night. Could she but get that into her hands, it would be a potent argument to induce this stranger to obey her. The princess also knew that in the drawer of that escritoire, which she could actually see half open, she had placed only a few minutes before going into her bath, a pocketbook filled with banknotes for a 120,000 francs money she had withdrawn from the strong-room of the hotel that very morning in order to meet some bills next day. She looked at the drawer and wondered if the pocketbook was still there, or if this mysterious admirer of hers was only a vulgar hotel thief after all. The man had followed her eyes to the revolver. "'That is an unusual knick-knack to find in a lady's room, princess,' and he sprang in front of her as she was taking a step toward the escritoire and took possession of the revolver. Do not be alarmed, he added, noticing her little gesture of terror. I would not do you an injury for anything in the world. I shall be delighted to give this back to you in a minute. But first, let me render it harmless. He deftly slipped the six cartridges out of the barrel, and then handed the now useless weapon to the princess with a gallant little bow. Do not laugh at my excess of caution, but accidents happen so easily. It was in vain that the princess tried to get near her escritoire, to ascertain if the drawer had been tampered with. The man kept between her and it all the time, still smiling, still polite, but watching every movement that she made. Suddenly, he took his watch from his pocket. Two o'clock? Already? Princess, you will be vexed with me for having abused your hospitality to such an extent. I must go. He appeared not to notice the sigh of relief that broke from her, but went on in melodramatic tone, I shall take my departure not through the window like a lover, nor up the chimney like a thief, nor yet through a secret door behind the arras like a brigand of romance, but like a gentleman who has come to pay his tribute of homage and respect to the most enchanting woman in the world, through the door. He made a movement as if to go, and came back. And what do you think of doing now, princess? Perhaps you will be angry with me? Possibly some unpleasant discovery made after my departure 
will raise some animosity in your breast against me. You might even ring, directly my back is turned, and alarm the staff, merely to embarrass me in my exit, and without paying any attention to the subsequent possible scandal. That is a complicated arrangement of bells and telephones beside your bed. It would be a pity to spoil such a pretty thing, and besides, I hate doing unnecessary damage. The princess's eyes turned once more to the drawer. It was practically certain that her money was not there now. But the man broke in again upon her thoughts. What can I be thinking of? Just fancy my not having presented myself to you even yet. But as a matter of fact, I do not want to tell you my name out loud. It is a romantic one, utterly out of keeping with the typically modern environment in which we are now. Ah, if we were only on the steep side of some mountain, with the moon like a great lamp above us, or by the shore of some great wild ocean, there would be some fascination in the proclamation of my identity in the silence of the night, or in the midst of lightning and thunder as the hurricanes swept the seas. But here, in a third-rate suite of the Royal Palace Hotel, surrounded by telephones and electric light, and standing by a window overlooking the Champs-Élysées, it would be a positive anachronism. He took a card out of his pocket and drew near the little escritoire. Allow me, princess, to slip my card into this drawer, left open on purpose, it would seem. And, while the princess uttered an exclamation she could not repress, he suited the action to the word. And now, princess, he went on, compelling her to retreat before him, right to the door of the anteroom opening on to the corridor. You are too well-bred, I am sure, not to wish to conduct your visitor to the door of your suite. His tone altered abruptly, and in a deep, imperious voice that made the princess quake, he ordered her, and now not a word, not a cry, not a movement until I am outside, or I will kill you. Clenching her fists, and summoning all her strength to prevent herself from swooning, Sonia Danidoff led the man to the anteroom door. Slowly she unlocked the door and held it open, and the man stepped quietly through. The next second he was gone. Leaping back into her bedroom, Sonia Danidoff set every bell a-ringing. With great presence of mind, she telephoned down to the hall porter. Don't let anybody go out. I have been robbed. And she pressed hard upon the special button that set the great alarm bell clanging. Footsteps and voices resounded in the corridor. The princess knew that help was coming and ran to open her door. The night watchman and the manager of the third floor came running up, and waiters appeared in numbers at the end of the corridor. "'Stop him! Stop him!' the princess shouted. "'He has only just gone out, a man in a dinner jacket with a great black beard.' A lad came hurrying out of the lift. "'Where are you going? What is the matter?' inquired the hall porter, whose lodge was at the far end of the hall, next to the courtyard of the hotel, the door into which he had just closed. "'I don't know,' he answered. "'There is a thief in the hotel. They are calling from the other side.' "'It's not in your set, then?' By the way, what floor are you on? The second. All right, said the hall porter. It's the third floor they are calling from. Go up and see what is wrong. The lad turned on his heel, and disregarding the notice forbidding servants to use the passenger lift, hurried back into it and upstairs again. He was a stoutly built fellow with smooth face and red hair. On the third floor he stopped, immediately opposite Sonia Danidoff's suite. The princess was standing at her door, taking no notice of the watchman Mueller's efforts to soothe her excitement, 
and mechanically twisting between her fingers the blank visiting card which her strange visitor had left in place of her pocketbook and the hundred and twenty thousand francs. There was no name whatever on the card. Well, said Mueller to the red-headed lad, where do you come from? I'm the new man on the second floor, the fellow answered. The hall porter sent me up to find out what was the matter. Matter, said Mueller. Someone has robbed the princess. Here, send someone for the police at once. I'll run, sir, and as the lift, instead of being sent down, had carelessly been sent up to the top floor, the young fellow ran down the staircase at full speed. Through the telephone, Mueller was just ordering the hall porter to send for the police, when the second-floor servant rushed up and caught him by the arm, dragging him away from the instrument. "'Open the door, for Lord's sake! I'm off to the police station!' And the hall porter made haste to facilitate his departure. On the top floor, cries of astonishment re-echoed. The servants had been alarmed by the uproar, and surprised to see the lift stop and nobody get out of it, they opened the door and found a heap of clothing, a false beard and a wig. Two housemaids and a valet gazed in amazement at these extraordinary properties, and never thought of informing the manager, Monsieur Louis. Meantime, however, that gentleman had hurried through the mazes of the hotel, and had just reached the third floor when he was stopped by the Baron van der Rosen, one of the hotel's oldest patronesses. Monsieur Louis, she exclaimed, bursting into sobs, I have just been robbed of my diamond necklace. I left it in a jewel case on my table before going down to dinner. When I heard the noise just now, I got up and looked through my jewel case, and the necklace is not there. Monsieur Louis was too dazed to reply. Muller ran up to him. Princess Sonia Danidoff's pocketbook has been stolen, he announced, but I have the hotel door shut, and we shall be sure to catch the thief. The princess came near to explain matters, but at that moment the servants came down from upstairs, bringing with them the make-up articles which they had found in the lift. They laid these on the ground without a word, and Monsieur Louis was staring at them when Muller had a sudden inspiration. Monsieur Louis, what is the new man on the second floor like? Just at that instant, a servant appeared at the end of the corridor, a middle-aged man with white whiskers and a bald head. There he is, coming towards us, Monsieur Louis replied. His name is Arnold. Good God, cried Muller, and the red-headed fellow, the carroty chap. Monsieur Louis shook his head, not understanding, and Muller tore himself away and rushed down to the hall porter. Has he gone out? Has anyone gone out? No one, said the porter, except, of course, the servant from the second floor, whom you sent for the police. The carroty chap? Muller inquired. Yes, the carroty chap. Princess Sonia Danidoff lay back in an easy chair, receiving the anxious attentions of Nadine, her Sarkissian maid. Monsieur Louis was holding salts to her nostrils. The princess still held in her hand the card left by the mysterious stranger who had just robbed her so cleverly of a hundred and twenty thousand francs. As she slowly came to herself, the princess gazed at the card as if fascinated, and this time her haggard eyes grew wide with astonishment. For upon the card, which hitherto had appeared immaculately white, marks and letters were gradually becoming visible, and the princess read, Fantomas. End of chapter 10 Recording by Alan Winterout Boomcoach.blogspot.com